Well, good evening, saints. Uh, it's good to be with you on this Sunday evening. Uh, we've been going through the, the book of Philippians. We've had a short break for missions conference and prayer for missionaries. Um, and I, I had a unique experience uh, while I was gone. I had the opportunity to, to teach Philippians uh, in an overseas context where I was speaking to a largely Muslim audience. And one of the things that just struck me is how Philippians takes on a completely different light in speaking with those people. Uh, most of the times I've taught through Philippians, it's, it's been in American or Western context. And usually the people I'm talking to, including myself, really have a hard time imagining a world in which they would be suffering or persecuted for their faith. Uh, the audience I, w I was talking to uh, actually had experienced that as a reality. Uh, several of them had beaten for their faith. Some, all of them had fled their home country for the, because of their faith and their Christianity and facing persecution. Several of the women had experienced rape as a result of believing in Jesus Christ, and this is by the hands of the police, no less. So, so speaking on Philippians, which is Paul writing from prison to a church that was being persecuted, and his over, overwhelming emotional theme of joy throughout the book, a joy that's not conditioned on our contentment or our circumstances, but a joy that is centered in Jesus Christ and is able to overcome suffering, all of a sudden takes on a new depth of meaning speaking to that audience. Um, it was extremely humbly speaking to those people about this wonderful book. It was also challenging knowing what they had been through for the faith. Uh, another element that takes on more meaning from the book of Philippians is Philippians talks a lot about our citizenship. It, it talks about living as a good gospel citizen in chapter 1. And then towards the end of the book, it, it emphasizes uh, that this is not our kingdom, but that we belong to another kingdom. As the old rugged cross song points out, our home is far away. These people had left everything they had in their home country. They would not be able to return without risk of uh, persecution and imprisonment. They currently are not citizens of any country. They're applying for refugee status. Some of them get rejected for that claim. Other, others uh, are in limbo. Uh, so these people who have no citizenship, being able to teach them about the fact that our citizenship is in heaven, brings on a new dimension. Uh, so one of the things as, as we talk about this and we look at certain parts of Philippians, one of the things to be reminded of is just because in our context, the church and followers of Jesus Christ are not being persecuted does not mean that persecution has ceased amongst believers. There are still many who are paying a high price to follow Christ. Which brings up an interesting question. And the question it brings up, and, and many of us may not have to face this as explicitly as a Muslim background believer will be, but it's how much is Christ worth to you? We, we've, we've all had the, uh, the, the hypothetical question of, okay, if your house is on fire and, and, your, and your family's safe, you know, 
and you get to run in and grab one item, what would it be? Paul, in, in the passage we're looking at today, is going to answer a kind of question like that, uh, except for it's a little different. The, his question he's kind of answering is, if you could set fire to everything in your life to gain one thing, what would that be? Last time we were together, we were, we were talking about what Paul was putting off, things he formerly thought were to his benefit, things he formerly thought were to his gain, that he now says, you know, I, I don't want it, I don't need it. He, he was exhorting the Philippians to put off man-made righteousness. And the particular form of man-made righteousness that they were tempted to put on was a form of legalistic Judaism where their right standing before God was determined by following the Old Testament law, getting circumcised, uh, following the commands of the Old Testament. And, and Paul, in a sense, gave his Jewish pedigree and said, hey, listen, y'all can't out-Jew me. I, I've, got the, I've got the prime credentials. And guess what? If anybody could rely on that, I could. But do you know what? I don't consider it an asset. I consider it a liability. We're going to talk a little bit about why as we read together in Philippians chapter 3 beginning in verse 6 he says indeed I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray again together. Lord, we pray that you would bless our reading of your word. We pray that our eyes would be opened to see what you have to say to us. We pray that our ears would be opened to hear what you have to say to us. Lord, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would teach us here tonight. That we might rightly understand your word and so come to a clearer knowledge and love of you. And in particular, of Jesus Christ, your son. These things we ask in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So here Paul says, uh, Paul begins to shift. Before he said that he counted all his previous Jewish background, his previous following of the law as a loss, now he expands it even bigger. So, so what does he count as a loss now? And why does he count it as a loss? He, he counts everything as a loss. And, and this is especially referring to his credentials in the flesh. Uh, but one of the things we, we have to stop and talk about, and, and Cole's talked about this a little bit, in fact, this morning in his service, is, you know, these th things that he mentions aren't necessarily bad things. In, in fact, many of them would be considered attributes. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being Jewish. In fact, that would, that would probably be a positive thing. There's nothing wrong with being circumcised, is there? That would, that would probably be viewed as a positive thing. Uh, in fact, let's look together at Romans 9, verses 1 through 5. 
And he's going to talk here about some of the, the benefits of, of, of being Jewish. He says in Romans 9, verses 1 through 5, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Well, now, th- th- there in that passage, it-, it-, it seems as though almost he's elevating Judaism, talking about how good and how great is it. Why does he have this negative view here in Philippians? Well, well the, ke- the-, the question is, what is at stake? And, and-, and what he's viewing as, as a danger is-, is not Jewishness. He doesn't view that as a danger in terms of unrighteousness. He views it as a danger in terms of self-righteousness. All, all those attributes, all, all that Jewishness that he was referring to, is an asset if it points you to Christ. And, and that was the great conclusion of all, all, all his section there, the patriarchs, the law, all these different things. What do they point you to? They point you to the Christ, who himself is a Jewish Messiah sent to Israel. Now, what's the danger of all those Jewish credentials that he talks about in Philippians? He says the danger of all of them is that you would rely on them instead of Christ. That you rely on your own following of the law, your own works, your own abilities to make you right and get you in a right relationship with God. The the, the danger is to think that you have some sort of leverage or negotiating power with God. Say, Lord, I've really kept your law. I, I've followed these statutes. I've attended synagogue or church on all the right times. I even come on the evening service. You know, you've got to be extra spiritual to come then. You know, don't I deserve a little bit for that? Don't I, don't I get a little more credit for that? You know, now God's got to owe me. You know, the people that just go to Sunday morning, you know, you can take them or leave them, but, you know, this could come on the Sunday evening. We really deserve... No, 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 no. Anything that we rely upon other than Christ to get us in a right standing with God is a danger. It's a dire danger. Paul then continues on and says that uh, he counts as lost not only his Jewish credentials, but everything. He says, not only do I consider that a loss, I consider everything a loss. Uh, one of the things um, I, I want you to consider is, is that Paul's not speaking hypothetically here. First of all, all, all the Jewish credentials he just mentioned, he, he put away. He lost the rights, the pri- privileges, the prerogatives of a Pharisee. He probably was disinherited by his family. We, we don't really have reports of him going back much to his hometown of Tarsus. You think about, okay, what was Paul's uh, retirement plan? Where was his hometown after he came to know Christ? 
He himself says he, he doesn't take a wife in order that he can, might be for, more fully committed to the work of the ministry. We, we hear about the things he goes through. He's shipwrecked multiple times, beaten multiple times. There are times when they stone him, and the reason why they stop stoning him is because they assume he's dead. His friends drag him out of the rubble, and he goes back into town. Multiple times he's, he's beaten. Uh, if you look at the life of Paul, even in his missionary journeys, you know, he's almost like a traveling hobo when you think about it. When he talks about the things he's lost, he's lost his home, he's lost his heritage, probably lost much of his health to the work of the gospel. So when he says, you know, I count these things as loss or, uh, you, you know, he's not speaking in some abstraction. These are concrete realities in his life. He, he's, he, he's not saying, I consider them a, as a loss, but I still kind of got them. No, he's, he's set them all aside. He says, I consider everything a loss. What makes him consider all these things a loss? Is because he's found something more valuable. Um, my wife doesn't like me using this illustration, but I, I will anyway. Uh, when we were when we were dating, uh, there was a time period uh, where I was I was just out of seminary. I was, I was working in a warehouse, and I was trying to save up money for a big enough ring to bribe her to marry me. Uh, and, and during that time, you know, money was kind of tight, and uh, so one of the things I did was I looked through and tried to find anything valuable that I had to sell in order that I could get that ring. Uh, and I didn't have too much valuable stuff, so it was kind of hard. But I had a bike that I bought after, uh, you know, I tore my ACL that was that was pretty nice. It was supposed to motivate me to, to ride it more and ex- exercise more. And uh, th- that was worth something. So that was one of the things I sold. Now, it was a really nice bike. But I was willing to get rid of it because I was pursuing something far greater. So I, I considered the the loss of the bike as nothing compared to gaining something far greater. You know, things that we formerly treasure or or value in comparison to certain other things all of a sudden begin to lose their value, don't they? Paul, Paul here says, I have found something that is so valuable, that is so important, that is so powerful, that is so beautiful, that is so majestic, that is so worthy of love, that I count everything else as a loss. He says, it is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. In, in the Greek, it's, it's kind of funny the way he phrases it. It's actually kind of common, but I think the way it's, it's phrased in Greek uh, brings something out. And it's bad English, but it's uh, the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, the Lord of me. He's talking about the Lord of me. There's only one Lord, but he's the Lord of me. Paul, when he uses this term, we use the term Lord lightly. I don't think we always get the full depth of what it is to have a Lord. We have elected officials that we get frustrated at and try and vote out the next time elections come around. 
Paul has a Lord. And he has a Lord he finds more valuable than anything else in this world. So he counts everything as a loss for that. And he, he repeats this, this idea again as he goes on. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Again, not hypothetically, but actually. But he goes even further than that. He says, not only have I counted them as a loss, but I, I, I count them as rubbish. Uh, and, and the term that's used here is a term that's used for refuse. Uh, so they, they had portions outside the camp, outside the city, where, where you would bring your rubbish. It, it was like the trash dump, but also the sewage dump, where they would throw these things. This is, this is a, a reference to those putrid and disgusting things that most of us try and ignore in civilized society. You know, it's the, it's the whole reason why we have indoor plumbing and things like that, is to get rid of refuse. So, so Paul is almost saying here, okay, Christ is so valuable that I consider everything else rubbish uh, and I flush it down. Every, everything else is worth flushing compared to knowing Christ Jesus. There, there's a danger in anything. And the, and the danger of anything is that it can keep us from Christ. Anything that competes with him, anything that distracts from him, anything that excludes us from knowledge of him is a danger to you and a danger to your soul. Paul says anything like that I get rid of. I move away from. I flush down. And he gets rid of them in order that he can gain Christ. One of the interesting things about Christ is uh, you don't gain him the way you gain other things. You don't gain him by saving up for him. You, you don't gain him by uh, creating an impressive resume for him. The way in which we gain every, almost everything else doesn't apply to the means of gaining Christ. Christ asks us to come, come to him. But in order to come to him, the, the price is pretty high. It means we have to abandon everything else. Christ offers him, him, himself freely to us. But he wants us to have only one thing. Uh, it reminds me a lot of the parable of the treasure in the field that, that Jesus tells us. And you remember in that story, there's, there's a man and he's going in a field and all of a sudden he, he found, finds a treasure that is more valuable than anything else he can imagine. So what he does is he goes home and he begins selling everything he has in order to buy that field before the owner of the property realizes what's on it. And he sells and gets rid of everything he has so he can buy that field and receive that treasure. That's the type of focus it seems like Paul has. He says, look, I'm willing to get rid of, I'm willing to suffer the loss of everything else so that I can get Christ. Now, as we go through Philippians, uh, it's important to remember something about the three aspects of salvation. And this is a very important piece of theology to remember as you read through Philippians. 
because uh, there are aspects where, and, and there are parts of Philippians that won't make sense unless you recognize which aspect of salvation you're talking about. Salvation, uh, and there's theological terms for these, is usually divided up into these three categories. The theological terms are justification, sanctification, and glorification. And, and roughly they refer to us uh, who believe, have, having been saved in the past, that's justification, the point in which you believe and are declared righteous before God. That deals with the penalty of sin. There, there's then sanctification, which is our growth in holiness, our growth in Christ-likeness, as God is working on the power of sin in our lives. So we have been saved in justification. We are being saved from the power of sin in our lives in sanctification. And then there's glorification, when it talks about us seeing Christ and being made like Him where the presence of sin is finally removed. That's yet future. So one of the things we remember and think about is we have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. And Philippians em emphasizes that all three aspects of salvation are a work of God. At the beginning of Philippians, it says that he, Paul is confident that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Later on, he gives the exhortation. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That sounds like it's all on us till you hear the next part. Where he says, for it is God who is at work within you both to will and work for his good pleasure. Well, what does that mean? That means I can't even want to do the right thing without a work of God within me. All aspects, God is working. And in Philippians, there's a heavy emphasis on this middle peace. Paul's very sure that his audience he's talking to have been justified, that they believe. And he's very sure of their eternal salvation. But he is arguing for this middle peace that they would have progress and joy in their faith. So the reason why I bring the, this up now is because he's talking about the worth of knowing Jesus Christ and that not only has he suffered loss, but he continues to suffer loss so that he might know Christ, so that he might gain Christ. Now, has he already gained Christ? Yes. He has gained Christ when, when he was justified. Now, is he still gaining Christ? Yes. He's growing in the knowledge of him. Have you ever, uh, do you ever think about how unknowable and unsearchable the person of Jesus Christ is? We will never plumb those depths. We will never fully understand the beauty, the majesty, the glory of who Jesus is. Till he comes back and finishes the work he started in us. Then we have all eternity to celebrate who he is and what he has done for us. Paul says, you know, growing in that knowledge, that's worth suffering for. That's worth losing everything in this world for. Nothing else compares to it. By the way, it also reminds me of the temptation of Christ. Particularly when, when Satan brings Christ up. He offers him everything in this world. Only to be spurned and rejected. And why was he rejected by Christ? 
because Christ had something more valuable than all the things in this world. There's a great strength to us in our spiritual growth. For those of us who know Christ and long to know Him more, don't be distracted by the petty, temporal things of this world. One of the things uh, also to to mention in this passage is um, there's two Greek, at least two Greek words for knowledge. Uh, One is oida, and one is uh, gnosis. And the, the one that is used here is uh, gnosis. And, and first I'll tell you what, what oida means. Oida is knowledge that's informational. The type you could pick up from a book or a lecture or things like that. So it, it's informational knowledge. But Paul does not use oida here. He knew, uses a different Greek term called gnosis. This one is uh, personal knowledge. It's an intimate knowledge. Uh, He's referring here to a communion with Christ, a deep and abiding connection with Him. In in fact, this this term is used sometimes uh, in the Scripture when it it says, and the man knew his wife. That's the gnosis, not the oida. It's talking about knowing on the deepest and most intimate levels. And this is what Paul is striving for. Not just to know information about Christ, not just to know facts about Him, not just to have the Sunday school answers, but to have a deep and abiding relationship with Him. I think about uh, the psalmist David when he, when he says, As the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs after you. You know what one of the implications of that psalm is? That, that David was experiencing a relational absence with God. Now, God is always with us, but that doesn't mean that we always feel and, and recognize and abide in His presence. So one of the things David is lamenting in that psalm and longing for and praying to God for is that he might better know and have an intimate relationship with Him. He longs for Him. He desires Him. One of the things, saints, we must be doing is, is not just creating uh, the right thoughts or the right theology. We need to be forming the right desires within ourselves. We need to be cultivating godly desires and longings so that the, the things that we want, the things that we really desire, the things that we're hungering for, the things that we're thirsting for are not temporary, but they're of abiding and eternal value. There's many people who have good theology, good background, who stray from the faith, who make a shipwreck of their faith because they have not properly oriented their desires to the right ends. I hope you're growing in hunger for Christ. The best way to grow in hunger for Him is to experience more of Him. Pursue Him through prayer, through the Word through the fellowship of believers. Paul is going to go on. He says, verse 9, I want to gain Christ and be found in Him. And then he talks about how he wants to be found in Him. In fact, it's the only way to be found in Him. He wants to be found in Him. And in order to be found in Him, He can't be found having a righteousness of His own that comes through the law. 
in order for us to be in Christ, in order for us to receive Christ, we have to receive him on his own terms. One of the things we've mentioned is there are no bargaining chips with God. You know, with God, we can't come and say, hey, I've got a great deal for you. This is what I'm going to offer you in return for my salvation. No, we don't, we don't have the cards to play. We don't, we don't have the chips to put down. We don't have any leverage. We don't have any bargaining. In order to accept God, we've got to accept God on His terms. By the way, this is a, an idea that's, that's very foreign in our world. People think that they can, uh, they think, well, you know, if, if God exists, He'll accept me because I've done this, or I have the right to, God, to reject God because He hasn't met my terms. No, 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 that's not how it works. Our acceptance or rejection is based on us being submitted to what God presents to us. And in the scriptures, it's clearly revealed. There are certain things that are not going to pass, that are not going to be acceptable before God to get us right with God. He says, if you come with a righteousness of your own, one that comes from following the law, that's not going to get it. That, that is not going to meet the standard that he has for us. One of the teachers I, I had in high school, I went to a Christian school, and one of the best Bible teachers in the school had a great way of putting this. He said there are two things that we need to repent of in order to be made right with Christ. One is our sin, and most Christians realize and recognize that. He says the other thing we need to repent of is our righteousness. Because if it's our righteousness that we're relying upon to get us right with God, then that goes from the asset to the liability column. Saints, have you properly repented of your righteousness and relying upon it to get you right with God? Commit right. He says that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to rely on the righteousness of God. He says, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He says, I'm, I'm placing my faith not in my righteousness, but in Christ's righteousness, not in my works, but in his works. And all of us have that choice to make. And I pray that you don't try and dilute it. Try and say, okay, before I'm going to rely on Christ, and that will deal with all my sins in the past, but now that I have that taken care of, I'm going to rely on my works to get everything finished. Now, past, present, future, rely upon Christ and His work on the cross. Always keep coming back to it. Always keep relying on it. That is a motivation for our obedience. As we said, it's work out your salvation, not work for your salvation. There's only one thing that will save us, and it is the work of Jesus Christ, the righteousness from God, not the righteousness from man. By the way, a great encouragement comes from this passage. Because usually when we're doubting, when we're worried about our faith, what are we thinking about? Well, one thing we might be doing is we might be turning faith into a work. And, and this will happen. This has happened to me, especially when I was younger in my faith. 
I, w- I would think, you know, do I have enough faith? You know, is it, or is it the right kind or quality of faith? It, that's the the wrong question. The devil is real sneaky. If 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 he has you relying on faith rather than works, he'll try and turn your faith into a work to get you off track again. You know what? It, um, I got on a plane recently, and and what kept that plane in the air wasn't how much I believed the plane could fly. What wasn't important was how, it wasn't important how much I was faithing in that plane to stay in the air. What was important was the object of the faith. I, I could have been believing that the plane was likely to crash. I could have been terrified going on, on onto it. Or I could have been completely confident. It it doesn't matter. It matters which plane I put my faith in. In in believing in Jesus Christ, it it, it doesn't matter if we have a little bit of faith or a a lot of faith, if we have strong faith or weak faith. What matters is the object of our faith. Is it Jesus Christ we are relying on? And make sure that you don't make the mistake of relying upon your reliance on him. Just rely on him. Now, this gives us great courage and great confidence in our salvation. Because guess what? It's not up to me, my strength, my abilities, my righteousness, my ability to follow the law that brings me salvation. It is rather Christ's righteousness, his ability to provide a perfect and a pleasing and a holy life before God. His ability to provide a sacrifice that is pleasing unto God to pay the penalty of sin. And guess what? He did it. So I have great confidence and boldness before God, not because of anything I've done, but because of all the things which Christ has done for me. What a relief. What a joy that our salvation is in Him and not in ourselves. Paul wants to remind them it's faith in Christ, the righteousness from God. Paul says that this type of reliance results in growing knowledge of Jesus Christ. In in verses 10 and 11, he says, that I may know Him, that I may know Christ, the power of His resurrection, and may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Um, There's a lot of complicated things going on here that I've... a short amount of time to try and talk about them. He says he wants to know Christ. Again, knowing Christ, we've says he does know him, he is knowing more of him, and he will come to know him. He also wants to know the, the power of the resurrection. One of the things uh, that we're reminded of is that the same power that raised Christ from the dead is indwelling us by the Holy Spirit and empowering us to live lives pleasing unto God. You realize that? Paul says, I, I want to know Christ more. I want to know the, the power of his resurrection. And I say, and he says, I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Now you read that and you start to think, this Paul's a really an odd guy. He's talking about all these good things. His Jewish pedigree, background, 
all the privileges and, and rights he has. He says he considers those things lost. But now he's talking about how he, he likes suffering. He, he enjoys that. He wants to become like Jesus in his, his death. What on earth does that mean? I believe here he's, he's talking about the importance of becoming like Christ and the importance of obeying God is so important to him that he pursues suffering. He doesn't mind it. He pursues a form of death. Now, the last time Christ's death is mentioned in Philippians, before we get to this, is in chapter 2. Chapter 2, if if you'll remember, is is that beautiful, almost hymnic section where Paul is exhorting the Philippian believers to humble themselves. And as the supreme example of humility, he presents to them Jesus Christ gave up far more than we'll ever be able to give up because he started with a whole lot more than we'll ever have until we are fully redeemed. He, he talks about him being in the presence and form of God and giving that up and taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in form, human form. He humbled himself. Now here's the reference to death by becoming obedient to the point of death. So the last time the death of Christ is mentioned is in reference to obedience. Paul here again references the death of Christ. He says, I want to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. What type of death did Jesus have? He had a death of suffering for the sake of obedience. Paul says, I want to obey no matter what. If obedience through suffering helps me be more like Christ, helps me know more of the power of his resurrection, helps me know Christ more, then guess what? Suffering is an asset, not a liability. Even if I suffer unto death, just to have the privilege of being like him, it's worth it. It's amazing and incredible that once you make Christ the only thing, Everything else seems so trivial and insignificant. We have the story of Peter. And Peter, they were going to crucify him. And a strong church tradition tells us that that Peter didn't view himself worthy enough to experience the same type of death that Jesus experienced. So he requested that they crucify him upside down. I can't imagine what crucifixion is like, but I can only imagine that it probably wouldn't be made better by being crucified upside down. But what was his his priority? His priority was the glory of Christ. By the way, there's, um, there's something about suffering that allows us to glorify God in a way here on earth that we won't be able to in heaven. In the book of Job, we we get a glimpse behind the curtain and we get to see what goes on in the heavenly realm for a brief period of time. And in that, we see that, that Satan is constantly accusing and making accusations. We have God commend a person named Job who's living a righteous and upright life by serving God. In fact, God points this, points this out to the heavenly host and Satan makes an accusation. He says, does Job serve God for nothing? You put a hedge around him. You've protected him. 
what's, what's the accusation implicitly? Lord, the only reason why anybody would serve you, the only reason why anybody would worship you, is because you give them good things. You are not worthy of worship and praise in and of yourself. You're only worth being worshipped in order that they can get something from you. That is the heavenly accusation that is made against God's glory. And then what happens? Job begins to suffer. And his life is an earthly test case for the divine accusation that God is not worthy to be worshipped. Job is, in fact, answering this question. Is God worthy to worship, be worshipped even when we suffer? Even when we're in pain? Even when we experience loss? And there's a heavenly audience watching. Saints, it glorifies God when we love Him despite suffering. It answers and rebuffs that accusation that, yes, God is worthy of praise and honor and worship, allegiance and obedience, even if I suffer, even if I die. It's a response to that, and it brings God glory. That is a way in which we worship and honor God here on earth that we cannot in heaven. Because guess what? In heaven, there is no pain and suffering. We have a brief time here on this earth to honor and glorify God in the midst of suffering. Don't waste those opportunities. Paul says he wants to be like him. Share in his suffering. Share in his resurrection. Become like him in his death. He says that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Just as Christ humbled himself and suffered and there was an award for them. Paul knew that his suffering, his pain, these things he was going through was pursuing a greater resurrection, was pursuing a greater life. Uh, Now, it, it sounds almost as if Paul is unsure of his resurrection. He says, by any means possible, I might attain the resurrection from the dead. That's not really what's going on here. And we could point to many, many passages where Paul is sure of his salvation, sure of his resurrection. What is, there is an element of uncertainty. The uncertainty for Paul, especially if you remember his situation that he's writing from, is not whether or not he will attain the resurrection from the dead, but the means by which he will get there. He, he might attain the resurrection from among the dead through martyrdom by being killed in a Roman prison where he is right now. He he might attain the resurrection from the dead by being released and dying later. He might attain the resurrection from among the dead by staying alive until Christ comes and raises all those who are in him. So the the uncertainty for Paul isn't whether or not I'm going to earn this resurrection. It's the means by which he's going to attain it, and he's willing to move forward on all accounts to attain it. Remember what he says earlier. He says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He says, hey, if I stay here, that means I will continue worshiping, serving, and pursuing the Lord Jesus. Hey, if I die, that's even better. Guess what? I get to go and be with him. He says, no matter what the course is, I am pursuing 
the resurrection of life. I am pursuing the Lord of life in Jesus Christ. Paul is a man of singular focus and conviction. He has found something, someone in the person of Jesus Christ that is worth giving up everything else for. It's worth suffering for, worth dying for. And he knows in the end he will be brought to life in Jesus Christ. He knows in the end that if he is found in Jesus Christ and in the power of his resurrection, having Christ's righteousness, not his own righteousness, he's going to attain the resurrection. He's going to reach the goal. And he's going to be reunited with his Savior. Are you looking forward to that day? Until that day... Are you pursuing the knowledge of Him? Not just informationally, but relationally. Through any means possible. I hope you are. Let's close in prayer. Lord, strengthen.